Hello, and welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Tyler Carlson, the Silvo Pasture and Agroforestry Project Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. This is um, episode two of my conversation with Stephen Tomford, senior ecologist at Stantec, talking about oak savanna restoration. Um, we left off the last episode uh, with some discussion about you know, sh- uh, short range versus long range variables or, um, Stephen, how did you describe that before it was, um, yeah, short, short versus, fast, variables, short, fast, yeah. short, fast yeah. versus long, slow. Yeah. Variables. And, um, I think that's a perfect segue into discussing, um, uh, you know, how we actually restore Oak Savannah, what that, what that takes and, um, sort of what, where we've been in the world of, of restoring Oak Savannah and what we missed. Um, you know, what did we get you know, I don't want to say wrong, but what did you know? What did we miss in 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 our prior attempts to restore Oak Savannah, and what what do we know, and and what do you suggest that that we need to carry forward? So, what is the process? You know, at basic, what's the basic process of restoring Oak Savannah? What's what is the work that's being done up front? Uh, what does that job look like, so to speak, out in the field? And um, what's what's a process by which you draw up a plan for a site? things I'd like to discuss here now. Okay, good question. Um, so back to Oak Savannah here and how, how we can restore these systems from these eight forested systems. Um, I, I had a recent discussion with a, a couple of professors from the University of Minnesota, ran into these guys at a coffee shop, accidental, and they sell my pickup truck and they said, hey, do you do, you know, grazing, blah, blah, blah. And we had a good talk. And um, the one gentleman said, um, he said, so you're telling me that in these afforested conditions that the carbon is now instead of going into the ground like it has for 30 million years, it's going out of the ground. And the nitrogen that used to go into the sky is now going into the ground. So carbon's going into the atmosphere now and nitrogen's going into the ground where historically the carbon went in the ground and the nitrogen into the atmosphere. Right. And I said, yeah, it's completely switched. And that's really common in these catastrophic regime shifts where everything changes. When that last straw falls onto the camel's back, the camel doesn't work anymore. The camel goes from this, this working organism to like dead or, you know what I mean? Completely different. And so that is a symptomatic. Now the camel nutrients inside of them are just oozing out of it because the camel's gone, right? Yeah. And so that's a really interesting concept. That's a catastrophic regime shift. And that's an afforested landscape is the equivalent to that in the catastrophic regime um, transition models. So when I'm looking at these savanna, these afforested lands with these big, large trees in it, or even Tyler, if you were to start with a prairie, every time I do a prairie, you know, I'm like, we should plant some oak trees out there, or we should plant some hawthorn and oak and some aspen over there. And they're like, well, it says on the map here, it's supposed to be a prairie. I'm right. like, well, it's yeah. really no difference. And I think people would like to sit underneath an oak tree out there in the field and on a hot shady day, or if we graze it, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know? So anyways, I'm always trying to bring trees. Everything's a savannah to me type situation. So if we look at it from an afforested site, as in a catastrophic state, we can't go in there and just manipulate a few things like take out the junk, you know, the buckthorn. And I get so many of those projects come to me um, where I mistakenly said to a bunch of people, it's like, I'm just bored with that. And, um, you know, I, I got 
I got fed back, got feedback from saying I'm bored just cutting buckthorn all the time because I want to change the ecosystem to where it self-sustains. And well, and you know you're going to be state. back. You yeah, know you're going to be back in a few years. And again, and I went from this rescuing and cutting this evil thing called buckthorn to like saving the world to like, oh, wow, it all came back. You know? yeah, <laughs> we right. have to do something different, right? So, um, so anyways, in this catastrophic regime shift, I have to push it back further than that last straw that broke the camel's back. I got to get the camel healthy again so it can take more load, you know, on those certain years and then less load and et cetera. So when we do that, we literally have to shock the system back to a certain point. And in my estimation, most of our work in these oak systems, oak lands, I've called them some oak ecosystems. I've heard some people in your group call them oak ecosystems. Like, oh, I like that term a lot. Yeah. Oak ecosystems. Um, far too much of our work in this, we don't remove enough trees. And we don't create enough sun, I guess would be a better way to say it. And every site I've been to that, that we tiptoe, like up at Little Falls, Minnesota and Bell Prairie, we tiptoe on the trees so we don't cause this social chaos, like, oh, they're cutting all the trees sure. down and people cha chaining themselves to the trees and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, uh, every time I've gotten phone calls from these people two, three years later, and they say, we wish we would have cut more trees in the long run. And, you know, that's good. And hopefully that now that they see it, they'll be able to go back out and get some more money and, and cut these trees. So at that point, I need to open these systems up at least back to 50 and even better 60. And then the ultimate direction by cutting stumps, walking through these systems, looking at the amount of sun there, looking at all the speed recruitment, it's really up towards 80%. Sunlight. So these are Full mature trees. Yep, eighty percent, seventy. And here, here's here's one of the reasons why we kind of talk about that catastrophic regime shift, where you got to really push it back. Take not just the straw that broke the camel's back off, you know, the buckthorn, but a whole bunch of other straws, so the camel's nice and healthy again. It can take some more load and then less, you know, type of situation. Because if I just remove enough buckthorn and other trees, so there's sun on the ground those trees grow log logarithmically every year. So all of a sudden that 50% opening within a period of five years becomes 70% or 30% um, opening within five more years back down to 20%, 15 and pretty soon we're closed canopy. In 10 years we're closed canopy again. And we're right back where we started from. Mm -hmm. So if we're gonna mobilize and get the machines in there and do that, that work, we want to shock the system back. Now, that doesn't mean, and, and your people are very well versed on this, that we can leave more wooded areas over here on that northeast aspect. Yeah. We want it to be more wooded there. Yeah. Historically, it would have been more wooded there. Um, let's leave more open. Let's make it more open over there. You know, that's good grazing land over there, pasture land. Or let's make that the little prairie or the opening inside of the oak ecosystem. And so you can get really creative in this. So that, that's one te technique that we'll use is trying to really shock that system back to the, you know, 80%. And we do get away with 70%, but some of my best projects, and I have to hand it out to a colleague of mine, Caleb Ashley in Burnsville. He's their environmental specialist there. He and I have worked on several projects now covering 46 acres where we have cut back 70% of the trees. The results are phenomenal to the point 
we'll have people review our work who have given us the money, the grant givers, and they'll come out and say, you're lying to us. This site is not just three years old. It's like, no, it's three years old. And we've got grasses that are neat tall. Now we can use fire to beat the buckthorn out, you know, type of situation. So, but let's back out. That's, that's my first parameter. Second parameter, what do you cut, right? Mm -hmm. What do you take? What do you leave? And Elder Leopold once said, and I thought it was a classic statement, you can tell the edge, how well a conservationist knows his system he's working in, you know, by giving him an ax. Meaning we have to cut trees, but which ones and why did he cut that tree? Right. And so that's, that's, the, um, that, that's kind of the next step, going in there and marking what trees are going to cut. And so I've developed um, a formula based on these Odom brothers, you know, to help me to, to figure out what species in this wooded area will contribute to long-term ecological integrity, carbon sequestration, feeding wildlife animals, not growing super fast, not producing a ton of nitrogen that spurs weeds. So what species will help me achieve those outcomes and what species are working against me, native or not, it doesn't matter. Um, some species that are native like hackberry, red elm, uh, and ash just rot right away. And anyone that lives with an ant or silver maple, you know, anyone that lives with those trees knows how much junk they put on the ground, those nitrogen contributions, how much shade they create, how fast they grow. So we literally score these trees by the qual their quality based on how they contribute to the, the integrity of the entire system. Obviously, bur oaks, white oaks, aspen, hawthorn, things with big fruit, things that got really tough wood, you know. I mean, you can barely cut them. Things that live a long, long time. Things that are more evolutionary advanced and things people like. You know, we'll say, oh, we love that apple tree over there. We'll save that apple tree. You know, and it's an apple tree, even though it's not native, you know. So this formula has really helped us create um, independent. I could give you this formula and say it's yours. And you can go in there and you, but I like that tree. Well, go ahead, score it high on that, you know, the cultural attribute of that. So we'll score those species. The white oaks come out ahead of the red oaks. And, and that's important too. Red oaks are less edible. They really drop a lot of leaf litter. Um, they live for a very short period of time. They're not storing carbon for nearly as long as the white oak system is. Mm. So if I have a red oak and a white oak competing with each other, guess what? Right. You know, I'm taking the red oak out, so we release the white oak in, in the long run. So that scoring criteria really helps us see what, what, what we can do and what we can do. Now, our goal is to get enough sunlight back into that A-forested system that we can cover the ground in <clears throat> grasses, graminoids. And we'll come in with a really highly diverse seed mix, like in these solar panels, they have to be shade tolerant. They have to be sun tolerant. They have to be dry. They have to be cool season, warm season, mid season. So we'll come in easily 27, 34 different grass species. And I haven't added flowers yet. So we're just coming and we cover, came in with cover crops, like 75 pounds per acre cover crop. And since we can't drill under these systems, we've just been broadcasting. And, and just like some of, I've heard at some of the Silva pasture um, conferences we've had or meetings we've had with these farmers. Um, we're broadcasting again really early March, um, early April type of situation. We broadcasted one time snow this week and it was Friday. It's like, let's go broadcast seed before the snow comes. Oh my God. It was like every oat, 
every annual ryegrass and all the other seeds just germinated. We could play golf out there within yeah. three weeks. <laughs> was that green? Now, once those grasses get going, I know there's going to be a lot of buckthorn and a lot of icky weeds in that seed bank. And buckthorn we cut that we didn't treat right or we missed totally. It's going to re-sprout sure. at Medusa. it take over rapidly. But we can go and overspray those grasses with a broadleaf herbicide if yep. we want to go an herbicide route. Okay. Yep. So we, we can easily do that um, and, and help. So I haven't added any flowers because I want to continue my battle against these evil broadleaves. Now, if you don't want to use herbicide, and I don't blame you for doing that. I use a ton of herbicides and, and um, I'm increasingly trying to figure out if we are going to use herbicide. Let's get to a point where we don't have to use nearly as much, like spray again and again and again and again. One reason I, oh, I like to do it the way I'm saying it, we will use the herbicide when we cut the stumps, just like a standard procedure, plant those grasses. And now we do have the ability to go and overspray in those grasses without harming the grasses, but killing the, you know, the catnip, the burdock, the burning nettles, and the buckthorn that's re-sprouting, and the green ash, and the hackberry, and all that other stuff that will rapidly grow out and right. kill us. It's a powerful uh, tool in certain instances. Yep, yep. Yeah. And certain, that's a really good way to do it. Let, let me tell you this too, and I'm working with Bloomington, if I get my grasses established in that first year, they get up that tall, but a super fast growing hackberry or a su super fast growing um, buckthorn gets six inches taller to the grasses, that's a forest. And just because they're ankle high or knee high, as wisp, we would call them, those woody species, to the grass plants, it's a forest. And they're shaded out before they become trees or shrubs that we think are a problem. And I've seen areas that are completely covered in green grasses of multiple species, native and maybe some other species in there too. Um, and within two years, they're completely shaded out. But the trees aren't even knee high. They've shaded out. So we have to stay on top of them. So how can we use non-herbicide? Mowing. Grasses love to be mowed. And how many times have you seen a trail through a buckthorn infested woodlot that the trail is 100% grass? Because they mow it. <laughs> so I, I told one person once, it's like, we won't spray our way out of 50 acres of buckthorn, but we can mow our way out of this buckthorn. The other thing that I get with the grasses is when they senesce in the fall, I can burn. And that's yeah. going to really beat back. And then it's also going to reduce the nitrogen in the system. The burning will oxidize nitrogen and also creates so much charcoal and carbon on the ground that now it makes it immobilizes the mm -hmm. nitrogen. So fire does two Not things there with that. Right. And the final thing, we could bale it or we could graze it. And this is where I like to use goats in the beginning because the goats will eat the woody species and the grass species. And I've always said, I've always been the one to say it in our, uh, our, our grazing network, um, if we can only use goats, that means we're still in the primitive state. Goats are very primitive mammals. But when we get to the point where we can move to sheep or cattle, we know we're going in the right direction. It's becoming more grass oriented. And how and long some, have you been yep. utilizing goats and or any other grazing impact for as part of your oak savanna restoration? Just the, I would say, the last 10 years or? Yep, 2013, 2012 yeah. type of situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I work. Um, and that's why we have helped form, um, you know, that, that grazers network with the goat grazing small run. Yes. Kent Solberg mm -hmm. is part of that. Carl Hawkinson is part of that. And um, because we see this as a, a very useful tool coming on um, sheep and solar areas and type of situation. But what I really want to do is see this move into where we can start using the larger species, the bovines and stuff like that. At some point, if we want to add more flowers to it, we can and that's just, I always say, I can get you any flower you want. That's not the initial seeding that's going to get it. 
It's the long-term management. I can get you anything that, that you want with it. One really good way to prep, again, mowing is a really good tool. The broadleaf herbicide is a good tool to keep those grasses. Fire is a really good tool. Burning is a really good tool. Haying. And we need, if we're livestock people in the northern climate, we need hay to get right. our livestock through the well, water. And you're pulling that nitrogen out of the system. Yeah, hay is an excellent, if you yeah. got a level area out in that wooded area where you can hay, oh my gosh, and it's good hay, and hay it when it's good hay. Don't hay it when it's straw. I see too yeah. many conservation people is like, yeah, we're cutting hay here and it's all dead grass. I go, I think that's straw. It's straw, <laughs> yeah, it's bedding. You need to cut hay. Yeah. And uh, your prairie will respond beautifully to it. And you'll also be putting a lot of carbon in the ground by hay too, at that point, taking well, off the top. Okay, so then a question I have is, um, I get the sense that with oak savanna restoration and with prairie restoration, the primary tool recently has been to use fire. Yes. Um, we're we're yep. keyed in on fire as yeah. a maintenance and, and maybe even to help set up the system, but certainly the long range, there's like, okay, we have to burn this prairie every three years or four years or whatever yeah. is maybe the savannas every six or eight or i don't know what but yeah. i get you get this kind of regimen like where it's almost on the calendar yeah. you know years <laughs> out of when it's going to happen is it do you need fire to what extent is in you know mm. what you're seeing with these systems do you really need fire and or you know what do you need to maintain the savanna once you've got it where you want it do you need right. grazing? Do you need fire? Yeah. Do you need both? Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Really good question, Tyler. Um, I'm reading a book right now written in 1971 by a Minnesota guy, um, Elgren, Cliff. He wrote some classic books, um, Lob Tree of the Bounty Waters. And, and this is fire history where he has a lot of different um, fire ecosystems. So he's a scientist and he's writing. And I'm reading the grassland chapter right now. We're completely fire centric in our management again we have no concept of the impact of the grazing animals that were here on that right. um let me offer one insight from africa again for the gentleman over there in the serengeti that the scientists that are working over there i read once in an article that they wrote that the amount of grazing that occurs in the african serengeti is so intense that oftentimes there's not a brown seed head remaining at the end of the year I'm like, oh my gosh. Therefore, our systems are barely ever flammable. And then they, they said this would have been the same thing in North America when their grazing animals were so prominent that fires would have been a lot less intense, a lot more minimal when the grazing occurred there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I never thought about it like that. So Tyler, sometimes when, when I see a stand of big blue stem that's all six feet tall, just solid stand, I've turned that gene on me of that primitive hunter in me. And I look, and I used to look at that. Oh, look at the big blue stem. Isn't that beautiful? Now I look and it's like, hmm, land no good, no game, no trails, no walls, no green areas, no patches, no tall stuff, short stuff, everything in between. And so I, it lacks heterogeneity. It's not interesting, even though it's Big Blue Stem. And my first name of the company I had was Big Blue Stem Company. <laughs> Way back. Yeah. I yeah. changed it after a while, but I was so enthralled. Big Blue. So you see what I'm saying. But the point was these green areas, if a grazer is in the system, the system's green. If grazers are lacking, the system goes brown. And pretty soon it goes into shrubs and then it goes into trees and it's all over with. So how prominent was fire in those historic ecosystems? I would argue it was a lot less intense. Now, when I was at Great River Greening, a good colleague of mine there 
and I, we burned a prairie where there's a 300 year old oak out in this prairie. And we thought, and you know, no grazing animals. So the grass was like six feet tall around the oak. Oh, that tree is fireproof. We killed the tree. Oof. So if I'm an oak, I want grazers to help minimize the impacts of fire racing at me like that. So, um, so anyways, that was just another thing yeah. to come out, you know, maybe, oh yeah, it's a fireproof tree. However, <laughs> if the grasses are six feet tall surrounding the trunk, we're going to kill a cambion on that yeah. tree. We felt horrible about it, you know, but, and it was a good lesson for us. Well, and the now, tree is in some ways, the tree is also competing. I mean, they're, they're, it's a system that's fairly resilient, but the trees and the grasses are also the oak trees and the grasses are in some ways competing for moisture yeah. nutrients to some extent but on a really dry year um you know they're competing for a, a limiting resource right um, yeah so there's and now you're including uh, you know potential interest in the tree of the grass being even more inhibited for fire right. purposes so there's yep. this interesting tension of cooperation and competition between <laughs> these these broad yep. groups of the oak trees and other yeah. savanna uh, woody savanna like plants and the grasses themselves yeah the grass component like elder leopold once said to them um all these organisms evolved together to the mutual tolerance there. of one another. yes it's i like classic. that yeah. yeah it really is so if we go back in time i mean we i think you and i would agree that again that 100th meridian in south dakota texas yeah. all the way up to canada eastward the precipitation is at the point where it would have all been treed but it wasn't and also I would say 90% of our fires, except for really rocky areas like the Boundary Waters and maybe up in Hayward, 90% of our fires would have been ignited by humans. Right. Okay. Except mm. for outside of those extreme areas like the Boundary Waters and lightning strikes are more common. Mm -hmm. But humans burn with a purpose. Right. And so they're burning with a purpose. And, you know, I, all these purposes, you know, to decrease the thatch, to decrease pestilence, biting mosquitoes, to drive their enemies, to drive game to create and way down low. And even that book I'm reading last night, written in 1971, one of the last things was like to create green vegetation that would attract herbivores. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there and I hadn't eaten dinner yet. I'm thinking to myself, man, that would be my number one number priority. One reason, exactly. I am yeah. hungry right now. And we had starvation last year in our village and I right. don't, and that was a common thing, you know, in deep winters, you know, you want to have your meat. So I would really like to think that the number one priority burning was to, to make it better grazing. Okay. Why did we burn? Why did the Europeans burn? Why did our, our more primitive, not primitive farmers, but our great, great grandfathers, our great grandfathers, our grandfathers burn their pastures to make it better grazing. I think that gene's in us. So let's go back before that, before humans were on earth burning. And we think we've been burning in Africa for 180,000 years. I mean, isn't that amazing? It's just yeah. like once we get a hold of fire, we, we did it. But before that, for the past 20 some million years, it was all grazing. It was all, it was, we had three species of elephant. How much vegetation was allowed to burn? You know, it was very park-like, I guess is what a lot of people were saying. So it's kind of interesting. So here, backing up on how I would use fire in my system, I would go with the farmer attitude, the grazer. And he's looking at his oak savanna that he's just restored. And there he is in the fall of the year. Um, and I, I can back this up with some really, really old readings from 1630s. I'm the farmer of today, 2001. I look at my oak savanna I restored, my cattle in there, it's October. All the leaves have fallen off on the grass. Doggone it. 
geez, that grass is, or, you know, my, those leaves are going to kill the grass. What am I going to do? I'm going to burn it off. The fires will be weak. They'll be spotty. They're going to creep, right. tiptoe around. Because the pasture is mainly yeah. green. It's these doggone, right, leaves. I got to get off. And so, so from the historic reading, the really ancient stuff, like from the 1640s, um, the Canaan of New England, Thomas Morton. I can, you can get that online. It's a three-volume set, 1643 in New York. He And just... Uh, since it's on the um, uh, whatever the federal registry of important books to read type of situation that you didn't read in school, but you can punch in the word fire and all through the three volumes, it'll, it'll highlight the pages the fire is on. So you can, it's really kind of cool to like that. But he's talking about the Indians burned all the time, twice a year if they could, <laughs> mainly in the fall when the leaf litter could carry it. It made hunting great. It made walking through these woods, you know, preferable. Right. So. And like you said, um, and I've always joked too, I, the way you brought this up, it seems like our fire schedules are like one to every three years or three to five years or whatever it is. And I go, how artificial could you get them picking on the map saying, we're going to burn every third year. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I so much like it when I see one of your grazers goes out to their pasture and say, you know, I think we need to burn today. You just burned last year. I know, but there's a lot of leaf litter, and I think we benefit from another burn. Right. Sometimes we know better than those schedules, which probably fit budget and labor you know, than it does anything else. So right. that's a really good question. It simplifies management. Yep. So grazing would reduce the role, the necessity of fire which is good in town. Mm -hmm. We're not releasing carbon to the atmosphere. We're putting it into the soil with the grazer. Right. But fire would then become not the primary mechanism, but the secondary mechanism to maintain the savanna short or the savanna grassland ecosystem for the grazers. Right. Isn't that interesting? So mm -hmm. just by your question here today, you've helped me think through it. Fire goes from being the number one tool to the secondary tool. Grazing becomes a, number one tool. Right. It's like a cool. um, it's like an attractant. By burning yeah. your, I mean, before we, you know, now we have fences and we, we move the livestock where we want them to eat. But, you know, before yeah. that was a thing, you use fire to attract livestock to a certain, not livestock, yes. wild game to a certain yeah. area by yeah. creating that lush, rich, green, high protein, high energy, easy to eat, easy yeah. to see. You know, the, the grazers are attracted there for the same reason we are too. It's easier to see exactly. the wolves coming, you know, yeah. and there's not that kind of... Um, thick brush and things to be uh yeah um i was yeah. just reading in that book they talked about um impacts of fire on, on mammals and this one guy he's writing it's like you know what it seems like the mammals will smell the smoke and run towards the smoke hmm. <laughs> actually and and literally he's talking about all these herds of mammals out in the plains literally would run through the fire into the fire to the other side and then stop running like okay this is awesome. You know, isn't that interesting? Well, and so, maybe as you're saying, if the fires were of less intensity, yeah, typically, yeah. It maybe it wasn't that big a deal. Right. It's like running through a leaf, a smoldering little leaf fire instead of this right. raging, you know, has right. makes its own weather kind of fire. You know? Yes, exactly. The own weather type of fire. What, what, what's also interesting, Tyler, is sometimes our very recommendations from us, me, experts are always counterintuitive. We would think about it. And I know that the, there's a crowd out there right now, and I work with them on a, um, a, a constant basis. The pollinator crowd are trying to push the burn cycles back to seven to 10 years. And I keep saying, but 
you're creating such a field, you're going to get such an intense fire that you're going to burn everything out and kill every little sleeping, you know, caterpillar and a, a, a stem. Right. Maybe if we burned every year and had grazing in there, oh my God, we'd burn like one third of the landscape if at best. And so it's just a different, you see with how it's counterintuitive. They think they're going to be saving more if they push these out and they may be actually killing more in the long run. And mm. So it's that counterintuitive, what doesn't make sense to us. It makes sense in the long run. So yeah, good question about fire. So, I love burning though. I have to admit that. Yeah. <laughs> and I... And I haven't done much. Like as a farmer, I guess that's some of that's some of my question because as a farmer, yeah. I don't I don't have a lot of experience with it. I don't think a lot of farmers who are raising livestock today do much in the way of burning. Yeah. Um. They have other tools and way uh, ten thousand other things on their list to do. Yeah. Yep. Uh, plus, it costs money typically to do some burns. Though, if yep. you do it a bit, I'm sure you can get it done on your own. Yeah. Um, but I just, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what are the tools available. And, and I look at farmers and I think burning is going to be, you know, number probably three on their list of, of primary tools. Um, just, that's just my assessment. So I'm trying to, trying to put together the tool yep. that can allow farmers to, to do this work on their own land. Yeah. Uh, if, and if, if fire's not, not really something they want to do. A lot. Right. And you see how we backed off fire centric management to like, no, it's graze centric management. Yes. Fire is just a tool to help you with your grazing animals. That's the way it's been for eons. And, and, and we've switched that. Uh, two things you can do to your pasture. One, if you've got a road through it or good trails from the cattle through it, that's sure. a fire break. Um, mm -hmm. Mowing, you know, literally creating that, that can be trails that you walk on and then grazing it, you know, will we'll right. really reduce that. And so even if you had just a chunk of land that was complete cornfield on one side, bean field on the other side, road over here, and here's a cow trail through it. Oh, it's an easy chunk. Just start to experiment with it. And you'll see it's like, oh my God, I can barely get this thing to burn. You know, right. only a quarter of it's gonna burn. But I'm burning the leaf litter off, nitrogen goes into the sky, the grass, etc. So I'm right. actually improving my pasture here today and having a good time doing that too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so to recap a little bit, yep. um, two, it sounded like there were at least two things that are new for you or things that you've been, you've brought into your approach to restoration that might be a little different than where the industry was, maybe even is now. And that mm -hmm. sounded to me like larger spacing between trees and, and more sun than yep. what has traditionally been done for Oak Savannah restoration, you know, pushing it at 70% or greater uh, yep. possible. You know, yep. talking about that shock to the system, yeah, and then and then the grazing are the two things. What what anything else beyond that? That's kind of the big shifts that are helping you succeed in your restorations, and or just like where is the general industry at? You know, where are your your oh yes, you know yep. other yep. other restoration outfits? What are they doing? Yep. Um, I think I think a lot of the um, I can go through um some of the tools that we use and I hope these tools get a lot, a lot easier to use. Um, uh, obviously cutting and you've worked, you, you've got some quotes on this for your own yep. site too. Yep. Um, obviously cutting those trees are very expensive and very, very laborious. Um, yes. and, and I know, is it Tom Hunt? Uh, why am I blanking on his name right now? Well, yeah, it's, the, it's Snake River Farm by Sherburn. Okay. Okay. So Tom is, he's going out and picking a little spot and working it all winter. And that's what I'm doing on our farm too. And our, our, our savannas, you know, to try to increase that pasture. The machines that we've used in our bigger sites where we get appropriate funding, I would love to see this program come to fruition where 
some of these federal and state dollars are going to private landowners and a working lands concept to help them restore ecosystems and then get what we need to do, graze these ecosystems out. Um, and I think one of the biggest difference in what we are typically doing in the industry and what I wanna do, and this should help us in the silvopasture crowd see this, grazing ecosystems, grasslands are grazing ecosystems. So Savannah is a grassland grasslands are grazing ecosystems. If we don't graze the grassland, the grassland goes away fast, 50, right. 60, 70 years, generation, two generations max. So we need to graze these. So Ken, I would love to see us getting money, federal NRCS programs to help us do the restoration and then graze these in particular ways that benefit biodiversity and ecosystem services, local products. Think of the jobs, you know, that's one thing, you know, artisan processors, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we'll come back to that at the very end of it. But if, if we had the right money, we could use these machines called feller bunchers. And a feller buncher in a level area can cut easily an acre to seven acres a day, depending on the density of tree. They can cut multiple trees up to, um, you know, 12, 18 inches in diameter, lay them down into burning piles or bring them to a skid trail that they can actually be hauled out of their type of situation. And so if you can do seven acres wow. a day, um, yeah. you're moving, you know, even you two acres a, a day. Yeah. You can cover a lot of ground, but it's so expensive. And, and the guy that I work with out of Ely, Minnesota, actually, in fact, we just bring him down to Austin, Minnesota for a 70 acre site. Um, but th this is the work he loves. You tell him no oaks, Mike, no white pines, you know, boom, boom, boom. He climbs in that cab and says, I'll see you next week. And he's like a surgeon going in there, cutting those trees. And we do it in the wintertime. In the summer, you'd never even know a machine was in there. Wow. And he cleans it up. He'll get the buckthorn two inches in diameter. No, no, don't even go in there until I'm done, you know. And then he'll mow it. And we don't want all that trash all over the place, which, which makes it hard to seed, makes it hard for the um, grasses to grow. So he cleans it up super, super nice. And that, that's been one of the great results. The other biggest constraint in my industry are these, these what I call social myths. And, and we've talked about a lot of social myths here today. Mm -hmm. um, uh, C.S. Holling, one of the great scientists, said there's, there's only two things that really hammer ecosystems. One's the loss of a keystone species herbivores okay the other one's social myths i'm like oh my god i i i think like that but i've never heard it so eloquently put i just read that last year and holling died uh, in 2019 finally i mean it's just he, he gave us concepts of resilience and so much more holling was an amazing guy but anyways a social myth of like oak forest and oak woodlands if we're spending money to restore oak forest by taking out the buckthorn and nothing else or oak woodland, same thing, taking out the buckthorn and leaving everything else. And then we have to go back five years later to do it again and again and again. To me, that's a real waste of uh, capital and labor resources that we should be focusing on doing it correctly. And so I think that's the big holdup. I, we bid on jobs that have already been designed to restore oak forest or oak woodlands. But if I get an opportunity to talk to the manager or the designer, it's like, hey, can we do this again sometime, but take out more trees? And they're very open to the newer concept of like, yeah, maybe the um, the definition of insanity is doing something again and again and again and again without getting better results. And Einstein yeah. said that. Right. And so I think that's a big one too. Um, is um, and, and so here, Tyler, the final thing, using that fellow buncher, using the right tools, opening it up, the 80 to 70% situation type of situation is huge. 
uh, fire intensities that are more frequent, but less intense, mm-hmm. I guess would be another one. And then bringing in grazing. I think the ultimate goal in restoration after all these years in restoring is you got to get rid of the bad guys. You got to plant the good guys, but I haven't restored anything yet. Restoration is restoring the processes, processes. that maintain yep. the desirable vegetation. And if that's Angus, or if that's Jersey's or Ayrshire or, you know, goats or sheep, then we need to have that in. And we need it in Bloomington, Minnesota. You know, I mean, just right. where can we not graze? And I'm working with a sustainability group here. One forest is holding them back. But on the map, those lines, you said, yeah. they've drawn these lines around this and this is Oak Forest. Okay, so there's a social myth. Two, the concept of bringing grazing animals back into an urban area, just, oh, we can't do that. It's like right. local food, local jobs, meaningful jobs, doing restoration, putting up fence, animal husbandry, artisan processing. Think of the whole new economy based on real-time solar. Think of how much gasoline we would need to do that kind of stuff. I mean, we right. could have butchers again right in my town. We could have cream. You know, where does this stop, you know, type of situation? So what I would like to see FS. SFA, and this is why I belong to this organization. I've like belonged to it for several years since I've moved back to Minnesota, is actually keep pushing this until it becomes it hits that threshold and becomes a market where consumers are like, I want to buy that product. Right. They're doing oak savanna restoration, they're doing prairie restoration, they're grazing their calls. And um, I think that that's the ultimate. Here's another social myth that um that I think we need to counter, and and I could get in trouble with a lot of my peers by suggesting this, but our current quality assessment of a prairie is by how many flowers are out there. Hmm. What in reality, when the bison and the beaver and the elk and, you know, all the rabbits and um, what in reality says that just a bunch of flowers means that's a high quality prairie if it's not being grazed. And so we may have to rechange our feeling of quality into where we perceive a huge sort of just grass, you know, not an invasive grass, a nice grass with hardly any flowers in it is acceptable. In fact, even desirable in our restoration, like, oh, and then there's flowers over on that hillside like crazy, but, oh, there's another huge grass area. There's some more flowers up on that hillside. Yeah. So maybe we, you see, instead of like just solid stands of flowers. Right. It's a patchy landscape. Providing it's the patchy landscape. Services, structures, whatever. Yeah. Resources. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So those are my colleagues are like saying, uh, I picture a watering hole (laughs) and I want to see this. That's where the amphibians and the turtles can get in and out where the cattle go down, mow everything right down to short trails going in. Guess where the snapping turtles come out to lay their eggs on those trails. Yeah. I saw that this last summer, actually on a, isn't that cool? They were using the cattle trail that was right along the fence to walk from the lake to a small pond, I think to, Well, whatever. I don't know what it was, yeah, it was heading towards the pond, yeah. or maybe it was going to stop short way and, and lay eggs. I don't know. That was probably uh, late June. I don't know what wow. time of year. That's probably. Did you get a picture of that for me? I do have a picture of that. So <laughs> I want sure that. I can find it. Yeah, it was pretty but, cool. No, it's really cool. And so, like, I've been noticing every snappy journal I see is usually on a trail, a human trail in my case. You know, yeah. you got it on an actual cow trail. A cow trail, yeah. Yep. I had a friend, he did waterfall research in North Dakota. He said, we'd go down where the cattle drink, and it would just be flattened with duckling feet eating all the bugs in that area. Yeah. So we have to be able to build those areas that we consider, oh, that's overgrazing. It's like, well, it depends. The yeah. journals would say, this is awesome. Man. Right. You know? Like maybe we don't want 40 acres of that. But right, right, right. Exactly. Like a tenth right, of right. an acre in the right yep. spot yep. can be a good thing. 
Yep, exactly. And so that's something that we all need to work on. And so I need to work on it with my peers. And and I think one of the big holdup, and I'm in that world, Tyler, where I go from uh, you guys, you know, the guys actually doing it. And I'm like, you guys are awesome. Keep doing it. Back to my peers. It's like, oh, they can't. Literally, I've heard a lot of backroom talk like, those great, this catches on. It's going to be disastrous for wildlife. And I just mm. like, oh my gosh. So we, we, there's a whole that with my environmentalist friends, with some of these conservation leagues, we still need to massage this message and, and show them the values to wildlife and biodiversity and plants and et cetera, et cetera, with this. And so one of the jobs I'll keep working on. Okay. Well, and, and they're not wrong that uh, I think a lot of, a lot of grazers and farmers out there don't, don't have the skills and chops yet to right. do good restoration, but right. I think it's possible and we yes. want to work with them. We want to work with those producers who want to do that work Yep. and with yep. the resource professionals who have the chops to put together the plans yep. to, to at least give it a chance. Yep. That's a good, good way to look at it. Working with the people that want to do it this way. Yeah. Interesting. I like that. Perfect. Yep. And I think there's going to be an increasing group like yourself that say, this is the way we want to do it. Absolutely. Well, I think, yeah, I think the interest in silvopasture and the interest in climate and water and pollinators is driving us towards a need for multifunctional, you know, landscapes. So, um, and most of that land is privately owned. Yes, it is. Yep. So unless that changes, um, this is where we're at, right? So <laughs> Right, exactly. And that's another thing, this whole working lands concept is basically based on that too. It's just like, we'll never buy enough land and, and nor should we, you know, right. we, we should let the people work it right. And, and um, I'm 100% behind that, that attitude. Let's well, champion the farmers. Farmers can do it while producing food for us. It's just what? kind yep. of, you know, it, it just, we might have to, yeah, give things a chance to go through some growing pains as right. we work through it and try it. And um, I think that we can find a way for this to actually be an economic driver, as you were saying, versus just kind of yeah. this, okay, we got to pour money into saving the environment, you know, with kind of nothing, not a, not a lot coming back out you know, in the right. long run, yep. it's just, it's keeping, and then we have to keep putting money into it to keep it. And that just, people wear out on that immediately. Um, right. Whether it's government or the resource professionals designing the programs or the public yeah. who's paying for it, um, that isn't really going to work either. So. Right, right. We, we need some benefit. Yeah. Well, yes, Stephen, this has been, this has been really amazing. Really enjoyed yeah. talking with you today. I think we've covered pretty much the ground that I want. I'm looking at, you know, we're going to have some, some webinars this spring. I think looking around early April, we're going to do a series of three webinars related to Oak Savannah and Sobel pasture and restoration and whatnot. So I think that we'll, we'll try to work together to get you on a, a webinar for, for our, our, our group, our civil pasture and Oak Savannah restoration practitioner group here uh, real soon. Looking forward Thanks to that. Thanks a lot, too. Tyler. Yeah. Keep up the good work, you guys, okay? Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks a lot. Stay in touch, bud. Stay well, yep. too. Yep. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Well, thanks, everyone, for another episode here of Dirt Rich. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture done well heals. For more resources and to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.